us because of our fallenness end up viewing ourselves in a way that is not honest all of us do all of us we all have brokenness in our self-image and I believe that one of the things God does in his redemptive plan not only for females but for men as well comes and say look I want to show you who you really are I want to cleanse your self-image and I want to cleanse it in accordance with the way that I see you you are more beautiful than you think In this world, it's easy to put yourself down and see only your flaws. And this is true for women and men alike. Pastor Daniel has a great reminder for you, though. God sees your beauty perfectly. His image of you is better than you can imagine. And he wants you to see yourself this way, too. Today, as you listen to Pastor Daniel's message, lay down your self-image and let God show you his. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Exodus chapter 38 as he continues his message called Construction. We are right coming down the home stretch, as they say, of the book of Exodus. I'm also getting excited. I've already started studying the book of Leviticus, and you guys are in for a treat. It was funny, I've been, as I've been starting to read and study, all of the commentators go off about how there's no commentaries on the book of Leviticus, and people don't ever study the book of Leviticus, and I knew that when I asked you all to raise your hands, everyone was going to be like, yeah, I've read the book of Leviticus. How many of you actually understood the book of Leviticus when you read it? That's right, that's right. <laughs> and this is why I'm here, this is why I'm here. But that's for a couple of weeks. We still have to finish out the book of Exodus, and now... This is what we're calling construction part two. Because remember, the way we've looked at this tabernacle series is that first you get all of the blueprints from the Lord. Right? So you have all these chapters of, I want you to make this, this way, this, this way, this, this way. And then you have this little interlude where the children of Israel go sideways for a while. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. He's been up there for a while. The people start getting impatient and they have a lack of leadership. So they come up with an idea. Hey, let's, we need to find a God to worship because we don't know what happened to that guy, Moses. And they said, Hey, Aaron, you want to help us out? And Aaron's like, sure. Remember, they had the golden calf, and they worshiped the golden calf. And then you had all that transpired. Some people died because of their rebellion against God. And then God went through a whole process of restoring the covenant of the children of Israel. And then after the covenant is restored, of course, then you get back to the tabernacle, and then you see the children of Israel. And we saw two chapters last week, and we're going to see two chapters this week, of the children of Israel simply doing what God asked them to do. In a lot of ways, this construction time. It's the actual building of the blueprints. And what you find over and over again in these verses is that the children of Israel did it by the book, as you could say. God said, I want you to make it this way and this way with these dimensions, with these materials, and the people just did that. And there is so much safety for us in choosing to orient our lives based on the simple and plain teaching of Scripture. If you look back over your life, the things that have really been hurtful, that have gone wrong, 
all of them you can link up to something I or someone else did something contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. And we like, I like to say it this way. The reason God asks us to do certain things, encourages us not to do other things, is because God loves us enough to say, I don't want you to hurt yourself. And I don't want you to hurt the people around you. So God gives parameters. He gives parameters. And so God's word should simply be followed. Now, don't get me wrong. All of us are like children who struggle with obedience, But I'm here to tell you, when you read something in God's word that you don't like, rather than just dismissing it, I want to encourage you to say, God, explain to me why. I don't understand it. Explain to me why. And wait on the Lord and and meditate on the scriptures and see what he reveals to you. I've never been, well, it's just in there. I just believe all of it and it's great. I I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have that, that blessing of that simple faith. I've always been a skeptic at heart. And every time I'm like, Lord, I don't understand this. And why is it this way? And, you know, almost every time God has ministered to me specifically, there's still a whole lot of questions I have. I'm like, Lord, I don't know. I don't get this. You have to explain this to me. Help me understand this. And I'm still awaiting. I'm awaiting his response. But the beauty is, is in all the different ways that he ministers to you and explains his ways and his purposes to you, even on the things you don't understand, you're like, look, Lord, I don't get that, but I'm sure there's a good reason for it. It makes sense. Because everything else, he ends up backing up. So even on the questions that you still have outstanding, you realize God's ways are good. His purposes are right. He's not just mean or capricious. There's a purpose behind it. And so on the things that I don't understand, I'm like, well, everything else makes sense. I don't quite understand that. And I'm not God, so I'm not going to understand everything. So Lord, I'm going to trust you even though I don't get this. So ask him why. Ask him why. Now, in chapters... 36 and 37, we saw primarily the making of the tent itself, the tabernacle, and all of the furniture that goes inside. And and it makes sense. Because of the way this thing has been designed, first you get the tent and all of the furniture on the inside. Remember, you have that holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant goes. Then you have the veil, and then you have the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and and the, um, the altar of incense. Now, from here, now we're moving into what you would call the outer courts. Now we're going to be focusing on, there's two pieces of furniture outside of the tabernacle itself, and then there's the outer courts. So we're going to be focusing on those two pieces of furniture, the outer courts, and then, of course, God had a special way he wanted his priest to look, because God is a fashionista in that way, if I can say that. And so, yeah, so that, and we're going to get to that in a second. Just to whet your appetite, you all want to get yourself an ephod and a breastplate. It looks good. People dig it. But we'll get to that in a second. So let's just jump on in. Exodus chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, it says, He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its width. It was square, and its height was three cubits. He made its horns On its four corners, the horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans, 
All of its utensils were made of bronze. And he made a grade of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. So this is the altar of burnt offering. We saw these details given in Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 to 8, and we got into all the details. In a lot of ways, it's a square box with the grating. There's four horns, and it's all made with bronze. Okay, now I want to explain this to you. Remember how we said each piece of furniture points to Jesus in some way? Now, if you are a child of Israel in that day and you walk into the court of the tabernacle, the very first thing you see is that. The place of sacrifice is given prominence. So if anyone in here is an interior designer or decorator, I am not, they will tell you that in any room, there's always going to be a focal point. And depending on what you put there, it shapes the whole room. I remember talking to somebody who was really into this. They're like, listen, whatever the main piece of furniture is, everything builds around that. And so when you walk in to the tabernacle, to its outer courts, the first thing you see is this altar of sacrifice. And ultimately, we're going to start seeing it when we get to Leviticus, all these different sacrifices are being performed right there, front and center. Now, why would that be important to us? Because God wants to keep before us the reality that a sacrifice is needed for the forgiveness of sins. That's why every single person, Jew or not, somebody wanted to check it out, they could even walk on the outside, they could see these sacrifices happening. Because God wanted in people's memory, in their consciousness, he wanted them to realize that the wages of sin is indeed death. That's what he told Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You will die. What's interesting is that that judgment of death for any person almost never comes immediately. Sometimes it does. If somebody does something and their life ends immediately with some transgression. But for all of us, death comes to everybody. And the reason death comes is because sin is a part of the system. God created Adam and Eve to live forever. And so for you and I, Every single day we need to remember that we deserve the curse of death and the only reason we have an opportunity to have eternal life in Jesus is because of Jesus, that Jesus died our death for us because he lived the life that we should have lived and our hope is in Jesus. Do you see why that's, that's given the place of prominence right there? It's the very first thing that you see. Now, it's, what's also interesting, remember, in the tabernacle, inside all that furniture is made of gold, but this is all made of bronze. Bron- this is the Bronze Age, for those of you who remember studying world history. So bronze was like the common metal. So it speaks of the humility of Jesus, the commonness that God would become a man and, and dwell among us. That the almighty God would become a human being and take on human skin and understand all the things that humans go through. So bronze was just normal. Also, people tell you that bronze in the Bible is a picture of judgment. There's a lot of different ways. So this all points to the reality that God has a sacrifice. And that's why after Jesus died, 
Or when Jesus was dying, he said, listen, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. The Levitical system, the sacrificial system wasn't necessary because Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus is a permanent atonement for the people. So all of the sacrificial system was designed to get people prepared for when Jesus comes that would end the sacrificial system. So that's why that's there. The altar for the offering. Now, look at what happens in verse 8. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of me. Now, this is the other piece of furniture, the bronze laver. We looked at this in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21. So when you walked into the tabernacle court, you'd run right into that altar of sacrifice. And then between the altar of sacrifice and the actual tabernacle door, there's this bronze laver. And it was really there. It was filled with water and it was for the priests to wash themselves. Basic hygiene. So you got to realize with all these sacrifices, obviously there would be blood involved. There's a lot of fire, so there's going to be smoke involved. And so there is this laver basin with water in it that the priest would keep watching. And it's interesting enough that you would imagine with all these animal sacrifices that by the time the day gets on a little bit, it'll be water mixed with blood. And it, it reminds you of the cross, doesn't it? When they wanted to see if Jesus was alive and it says that water and blood came out of Jesus' side. Don't think on any of that stuff's by chance. It all meant to picture something, to point to something. Now, what's interesting about this and we have a new piece of information here. This laver was made of bronze, but notice, and it's base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. See that? Part of this bronze laver was actually made from the bronze mirrors that the women used. Now, for you ladies, you don't have bronze mirrors anymore. And the reason you don't is because they don't make great mirrors. You're not going to get your, like all your pores amplified by 150%. I'm married, so I got one of those in my bathroom on my wife's side. And those things are scary. Like I, I get why people struggle with self-esteem. When you look in that thing, you see everything. It's not pretty. I believe it's a conspiracy to get you to buy all sorts of products you don't really need. But those things are freaky. Like no one looks at you that way. Like, you ever notice that you look in those things, you see all these pores and everything, and then you look yourself in the mirror, and you're like, man. Right? It's like, all of a sudden, you look worse than you really do. Yeah. I'm, I digress. You don't have copper mirrors. You might want one after you look in that little thing. I wanted one. I'm like, man, I'd like a fuzzy mirror. The less of me I see, the better off we are, you know? But bronze mirrors, you really can't see them. They're not good mirrors, but that's what they had in those days. This was long before Revlon and all that stuff. But it's interesting that the, the mirrors of the women who served at the tabernacle were what was used for this bronze labor. And I think it's a beautiful picture because I think for all of us, we need to give up a measure of our own appearance for God's cleansing. Each one of us needs to give a measure of our appearance for God's cleansing. Remember, that's what the labor was there for. The priest would cleanse their hands with water. And I believe that God wants each one of us, as we view ourselves, the way we present ourselves physically, to allow God to cleanse us because we all have warped views of ourselves from a body perspective, from a beauty perspective. That Dove commercial where people met people outside and a woman came in and she's sitting before an artist and she describes herself and the picture's one way. 
And then the people who met her outside describe her another way. And it's interesting that the people who, who described her and the artist rendering looked much more like her. And the one that she felt about herself was much more, was not as uh, inappropriate and it was a much uglier version. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go Google, do the, the you're more beautiful than you think by Dove. And, but what's fascinating is that all of us, because of our fallenness, end up viewing ourselves in a way that is not honest. All of us do. All of us. We all have brokenness in our self-image. And I believe that one of the things God does in his redemptive plan, not only for females, but for men as well, comes and say, look, I want to show you who you really are. I want to cleanse your self-image. And I want to cleanse it in accordance with the way that I see you. And what's beautiful and terrifying about God's view of us is we're simultaneously more beautiful than we ever imagined And we're also more hideous than we ever imagined. But our hideousness is not outward, it's actually inward. God's honesty says that we are more beautiful than we ever dreamed, and we're also more prone to horrible things than we ever dreamed. And they both rest simultaneously in the human heart, and that is why God came to save us. To unlock the beauty and to curb the evil that's within all of us. So I think it's a a phenomenal picture here that the women offered their mirrors for the creating of the bronze laver. We don't find that anywhere else. We find it right here. It's It's an amazing thing. These are the only two pieces of furniture that are in the court of the tabernacle. Now, in verse 9, we get the making of the the court curtains and the fencing around it. It says in verse 9, Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of Fine woven linen, 100 cubits long, and there were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets, the hooks of the pillars, and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long and with 20 pillars, and there were 20 bronze sockets, the hooks of the pillars, and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars, and there were 10 sockets, the hooks of the pillars, and their bands were silver. On the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets and the same for the other side of the court gate. On this side and that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And the overlay of their capitals was silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits, and the height along its width was 5 cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Verse 19, and there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze, their hooks were silver, and the overlay of their capitals with their bands were silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. Now, all of this we saw in Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 to 19. We're looking at everything that's around it now. The tabernacle sits towards the back, and there's a lot of room around it. So it was designed for people to congregate in. That's what it was designed for. The curtains existed to... There's a line of demarcation between those who worshipped Yahweh and those who did not. And that's one of the things in the Bible that the contemporary person really struggles with. 
that the Bible places a very specific line of demarcation between those who believe in the true and living God and those who do not. And our culture struggles with it in a lot of ways because we're coming out of a time where philosophically it's called postmodernism. And, in po- and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're probably better off. Because what's interesting, if you read about postmodernism, people who are postmodern don't even know what it is. It's part of the problem of postmodernism. But in postmodernism, really, you don't know what truth is. You don't know what reality is. You don't know what real is. It's the nihilism of, of late enlightenment put into the average person. So how many times you talk to someone and you say, well, the truth is, is you can only go 45 on that road. And someone says, well, that's your truth. There's no such thing as individualized truth. There's no, you know what's interesting about when someone says, well, that's your truth? They're making a truth claim as well. It's a, fa- it's a fascinating conundrum that people have. And so because of this thing where nobody knows what truth is, people are like, well, I can't tell you what the truth is because who knows what it is? So what's interesting is a, a truth claim that you can't know truth is the overriding truth claim. And so because we don't know what truth is, nobody likes to say who's in or who's out. But listen, I'm here to tell you, God has absolutely no problem saying who's in and who's out. God doesn't ask us to say who's in and who's out, but God gives us a very clear understanding. This is what it means to be in or out. You are either in the fence or you're outside of it. It's that simple. You either walked in to worship Yahweh or you stayed on the outside. And that line of demarcation for people today is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where it is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You read the teachings of Jesus, just take him at his word. He got killed for saying these things. So no, he wasn't very popular when he said these things. But he places a very specific line in the sand. And anybody who is truly allowing Jesus to have his due, not filter Jesus through your own goggles, but say, this is what he says, and this is what it means, Jesus doesn't allow a gray area. And believe me, I wish he did. I like gray areas just like the next person. But Jesus doesn't allow for it. Not in what makes somebody in or out. I've heard it said, and I've used it before, you're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You either enter by the narrow gate or the wide gate. And the narrow gate, it's a difficult way. Few find it and it leads to life. Or you enter by the wide gate where there's a lot of people and it leads to destruction. Jesus is very cut and dry with these things. Jesus is is not subjective. There's universal, absolute definitions of truth. You either believe in God or you don't. You've either been saved by Jesus' grace or you haven't. Pastor Daniel reminded you in his message today that you need to make a decision about what's right and wrong and where you're going to spend eternity. That may have made you uncomfortable, but it's a necessary question. Are you in or are you out? Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. Thanks for joining me on Jesus is Real Radio. I realize that not all of you who listen are followers of Jesus, but I actually believe that there are many of you right now as you've been listening, you're saying, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. I want his death and resurrection to be applied to my life. And if that's you, I want you to pray this prayer with me, which is just saying thank you to Jesus for saving you. Let's go ahead. Repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you, your life 
your death on the cross and your resurrection. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm so stoked for you. And I want to get some more resources into your hands to help you continue this journey. So pull out your mobile phone, text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 51400, 51400. And we'll get some resources into your hands. Now, don't go anywhere. Some folks from my team want to share some amazing things with you. Thanks, Daniel. Again, if you just prayed that prayer with Pastor Daniel, take out your cell phone and text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 51400. We'd love to get some resources into your hands. And the Crossroads team wants to connect with you. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will remind you to trust God in what's written in His Word. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. That includes the portions that don't seem to make sense. When you do come across a passage that's confusing or difficult to accept, take it to your Heavenly Father. Ask Him to reveal His purpose to you and to give you the wisdom and faith to trust Him through it. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series called Tabernacle. Until then, may God bless.